Alright, second book of Samuel, chapter 8. Lord, we ask you to bless the study of your word tonight. Yes, sir. And to uh, speak into our hearts, Lord. We ask your spirit to be our teacher and our guide through these pages. Father, I may I pray that we won't miss a thing. And Lord, if uh, there's something that I've missed in these studies and my studies, which I'm I'm sure there is, I pray that you'll enlighten and and bring those things to my brothers and sisters so that each one of us may may leave with our plates full, our bellies full, Father, of your word tonight. Yeah. And I pray you'd fill us up. Yeah. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Samuel chapter eight. Nine and ten. He said ambitiously. <laughs> Y'all remember last week, Second Samuel chapter 7, we listened in as the Lord promised to build David a house. It's called the Davidic Covenant, one of the major covenants in the Bible. There are seven, eight covenants, depending on how you break them down, that God makes with man. Covenants that He made with individuals. The Abrahamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and on through the Mosaic Covenant, all the different covenants. And this one is one of the most important because in this covenant, God promises a kingdom forever. He promises it through the line of David, that one would sit on David's throne eternally in the everlasting kingdom. And it's something that David himself recognized to be prophetic. He understood that when he heard the Lord speak to him, when God said, I'm going to build you a house, David said these words, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 19, he said, You have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. Not concerning the near future, not concerning his son or his son's son or his son's son's son, but concerning the distant future, David recognizes here, somehow, prophetically, he has insight and he gets it. This is something beyond what mere man could have thought of. And I want you to understand there's something of great importance to understand about Bible prophecy. It's always bigger than it sounds. Now I had a whole section I took out because we're going to get to Elijah in a few weeks. But there are examples after examples in the Bible of prophecy being more than just single event minded. Where the Lord speaks a prophecy, we see it fulfilled in part, but then later fulfilled in greatness, in, in complete fulfillment. Dual-pronged prophecy is what I call it, where the Lord says something about one person at one time. It comes true. We see it historically fulfilled, but we can understand looking back, there's a broader picture that's even bigger than what was expected or understood. Elijah is one of those examples. And again, I, I'll just give you a, a little sense of what I'm talking about here. Elijah is a man who came along, great prophet, And after he died, 400 years after he died, the prophet Malachi comes around. At the very end of the book of Malachi, he makes a statement. The Lord speaks through Malachi and says, I'm going to send Elijah before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now Elijah already came. So he says, I'm going to send him again. Now the New Testament comes along and John the Baptist comes on the scene. And the apostles begin to wonder, is he Elijah? Because he is the forerunner of Jesus, the forerunner of Messiah. And Jesus says, kind of. (laughs) I mean, he is an Elijah-type figure. So there's partial fulfillment. But Jesus says there's more to it than that. And we actually see, as we read and study in the book of Revelation, and we see indications later on that Elijah, I believe personally, 
Elijah himself will come before the time of the tribulation. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 11. If you want to find out more about that, you can go online actually now. Woohoo! You can go online and just click on Revelation chapter 11 and listen to the study, the teaching that we did on that, and find out what in the world it is that, that I'm talking about. Am I off my nut or is it biblical? You go check that out. But the Davidic covenant reveals this very same thing. We begin to see partial fulfillment. God says, I'm going to build a house for you, David. I'm going to give you a kingdom. And he does. And Israel rises under David to be this great kingdom, under Solomon to be the greater kingdom. Israel in its heyday. And if you were living in the days of Solomon in Israel, you could say, wow, that Davidic covenant is fulfilled. And yet the kingdom divides after Solomon. It splits and and becomes broken. And in the the northern Israel, they they go into captivity in Assyria. And and southern Israel, the kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity in Babylon. And and for hundreds of years, there is no Israel at all. And so you wonder, well, I guess that couldn't be the the fulfillment of the, the Davidic covenant because it was not everlasting. It had an end to it. And Israel came back into into substance again in 1948 as we watched happen in this generation and there is much more to be fulfilled in the kingdom of David the Davidic covenant we've seen partial fulfillment we'll see it in our study tonight and as we continue on in First and Second Kings but the complete fulfillment of God's kingdom promise to David is as David said concerning the distant future now and again, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11, the Lord says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. And in chapter 8, we see David handling this. We see how this peace comes, and it's very interesting, the way peace comes. By the way, I'll throw this out. There's a teaser, and I'll answer it at the very end. How do you really get peace in the world? How is peace truly accomplished? How will they ever truly get peace in the Middle East? We'll answer that at the end of the study tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. Now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. By the way, anyone know what the chief city of the Philistines was? Well, okay, so you're saying that in your scriptures. Yeah, say it out loud. Good. Close enough. There's another name for it that you can pronounce much easier. Gath. Which is interesting to me because who came from Gath? It was a city of giants. There's a hint for you. Goliath. And so now we see David subduing the chief city, the city of Gath, the city of Goliath himself, David's first battle was against Goliath and now he is subduing the Philistines to the point of taking their capital city in verse 1 verse 2 he defeated Moab and measured them with the line making them lie down on the ground and he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive and the Moabites became servants to David bringing tribute now David does a couple of politically incorrect things by today's standards number one he secures his borders and you can watch the strategy through here how David goes about that to the west he pounds the Philistines to the east he mows down Moab and in dealing with Moab he apparently puts two thirds of them to death 
and conscripts the final third, the, the remaining third, to lives of service. Now you read that, and I thought it was an interesting verse. I figured, you know, there's got to be more to this than, than what I'm reading. Anything, anytime I see something weird in Scripture, I want to understand it better. It says in verse 2, He measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground, and he measured two lines to put to death, and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants of David, bringing tribute. So how did he decide who would live and who would die? Second politically incorrect thing he did, he's on a roll now. Not only is he securing his borders, but he also deals with the enemy by profiling. (laughs) He does. He lays them out and says, okay, I'm going to pick who gets to live and who's going to die. How did he do it? Young versus old? Was it short versus tall? All the short people in line three. Tall people lines one and two. You're toast. Was it strong versus weak? Or was it proud versus contrite? We don't know how he measured out the lines. But it's possible that he measured out those who are more likely to rebel from those who are less likely to rebel. Those who are more likely to continue fighting against him from those who are more likely to settle into servitude for Israel. I point this out because I believe as Christians we are compelled to what I would call biblical profiling. What do you mean by that? Proverbs 23 verse 9 says, Do not speak in the hearing of a fool for he will despise the wisdom of your words. That's good news for you all tonight. Because I'm speaking in your hearing so apparently you're not fools. Just kind of thought of that. I don't know. Maybe I'm the fool. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Jesus said these words. And again, he's profiling. He says, do not give what is holy to dogs. And he's not talking about little bow-wows. He's talking about people. Don't give what is holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine. Or they'll trample them under their feet. They'll turn and tear you to pieces. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, he's sending his apostles out and he says, Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Then you read verses like this and you say, wow, so Jesus is kind of leading us to profile a bit. He is saying, so there are some people that we're not to worry with. There are some people who when we speak certain words, it falls to them, they're like foolish dogs and we're not supposed to talk to them about the gospel. Is that what you're saying? Is that being judgmental as the world would accuse the church of being? And I say to you, it's not judgment, it's discernment. It's wise determination. Is a person acting with foolish rebellion or are they open to serve? Are they part of the two lines that David looked at and said, you know what, they're going to be a problem. They're not going to pay attention. They're not going to do any good for for the kingdom. And therefore, they're, they're not going to be any of my business. This line over here, however, we can get some service out of. Again, I know this is sounding a little brutal, but how do I know if someone's, you know, what line I should put someone in? My response to you is ask the Lord. Consider the source. Be wise. And I am talking about evangelism. And who you spend your energy and your time sharing the word of the Lord with. Because honestly... There are people who just don't want to hear it. They just want to argue. And you're wasting your time. Sound a little harsh and a little cold? Well, I didn't line people up and kill two-thirds of them, okay? But I really believe this. And as I get older in in the faith, I'm, I'm understanding this a little better. I can waste so much time pouring out my heart to save someone, to try and get somebody who is in abject rebellion. Their heart isn't even open for it yet. All they want to do is argue and throw it back in my face. Or... Or I can give Jesus' love to someone who's open. 
and he desires it or who at least is ready to hear it how do I know the difference you ask the Lord one of the things that I pray is Lord give me open windows with people in relationships when I'm talking with friends or or family members who are not believers in Jesus give me open windows through the questions maybe they ask me but uh, arguing for the faith is of no good to anybody because we get into our flesh and we begin to just want to win arguments we just want to fight back and prove that we're right it doesn't matter we know what's right God doesn't need you or me to defend him he does just fine on his own now you never stop praying for someone you never stop praying but you do stop debating because we're not here to win debates never give up hope but you may need to determine receptivity put it this way we're not called to be evangelical headbangers so let yourself have that freedom that if you're in a relationship and it is just contentious back off back off and evangelize the person through prayer and love and not through words let your words be in your actions I I mention this just because as a pastor I I tend to take some kind of absolute positions on on issues of biblical morality and, and on Israel and on prophecy and I'll stand up and say things real black and white and maybe that's part of just my personality anyway and because of that I tend to get into discussions a few months back I spent four hours on a Sunday afternoon talking about Israel with someone who does not want Israel to be cared for or thinks that Israel is the problem four hours on a Sunday afternoon and we got nowhere and I think you know was that the best use of those four hours or possibly I should have used those four hours caring for someone who who had ears to hear or even caring for that person without being in debate we ask the question am I arguing for argument's sake or is it about the kingdom Malachi chapter 3 verse 18 interesting verse Malachi 3.18 Lord said so you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him for behold the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff and the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch distinguish between that the person who will serve God God and the person who rebels or rejects God love both pray for both but use your energy for the person who wants to hear biblical profiling there you go verse 3 going on in chapter 8 then David defeated Hadadezer the son of Rehob the, uh, the king of Zobah and he went to restore his rule or as he went to restore his rule at the river what that's saying is this guy Rehob king of Zobah he goes up to fight at the Euphrates takes some of his army up there and while he's gone David smartly wisely strategically attacks and his son Hadadezer loses this battle against the Zobahites verse 4 David captured from him 1700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers and David hamstrung the chariot horses but reserved enough of them for a hundred chariots when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer by the way Damascus where's Damascus today? it's in Syria so the Arameans here are forerunners of the Syrians and the Assyrians okay same location same group of people here when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer king of Zobah David killed 22,000 Arameans 
Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And I love this, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. Now, side note for you horse lovers. Hamstringing a horse sounds painful and sounds cruel. It's not. What it is, is it's putting them out of service. They still get to be horsies. They still get to be in the fields and they still get to eat the grass and smell the flowers and enjoy the sunshine. What they can't do is fight in battles anymore. So that's why David does this. We saw Joshua do the same thing when the people came in. He hamstrung the horses of the enemies. Why? So that they could not be strapped to chariots and used against Israel. So that's what he's doing. It's actually an act of kindness rather than brutality. Besides the fact, David apparently took Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, very seriously. At least one of the verses he did. The Lord declared the king of Israel should not multiply for himself horses or wives. So David didn't multiply for himself horses. So, as we look at this, David's strategy. We see already to the west, he pounds the Philistines. To the east, he mows down Moab. To the north, he zings Zobah. Thank you. And he assaults the Arameans. Okay? So he's going now west, east, north. He's going to go south. You'll see that in a moment. But his strategy is to secure Israel's borders all the way around. And you know why it worked? Because as verse 6 tells us, the Lord helped David wherever he went. That's why it worked. It wasn't David's brilliant military strategies, although he was brilliant. The winning strategy, the power behind it, is the Lord. Reading on verse 7, David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Betah and from Berotai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when King Toi, uh, which is a great name, King Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toi and Joram brought with him articles of silver of gold and of bronze well, King David also dedicated these to the Lord so apparently the gold shields from verse 7 he also dedicated to the Lord with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations which he subdued from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek from the spoil of Hadadezer son of Rehob king of Zobah why did David take the shields of gold to Jerusalem. Why is he stockpiling? What's he doing here? As he gets all the gold and the silver and bronze and he's bringing it all into Jerusalem. Is it so he can have a big museum to the victories of David? It's not. He brought them all there because David is already storing up supplies for the temple. He's preparing for the coming temple of God. Now he can't build it. God already told him, no, you're not going to build me a house, David. I'm going to build you a house. But David is preparing nonetheless for another person to do it. Now pay attention to this. He does all the prep work. The temple truly was the brainchild and the planning and the architectural design of David, not Solomon. Solomon built it, but David prepared it. Stockpiling supplies and materials, drawing up plans, hiring workers, preparing for the coming temple, which by the way is going on in Israel today. They are in the midst of preparing for the coming temple. It's very interesting to study those things and to watch that happening. But David does the planning. Solomon does the building. And it reminds me of the way the Lord has us function in his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3.6 Paul says, Who's Apollos? 
What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, God was causing the growth. So the neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Family, some of what we set aside and plan for, some of what we ourselves develop and get excited about, we will never see. David died before he saw the temple built. He would never see where his heart's desire was. Except that his heart's desire was with the Lord. But he wouldn't see the temple, his hope. And some people will sometimes say, you know what, if if I can't be used in this church the way I want, or they'll say, if I can't do what, what I plan to do, or if I'm not allowed to function in this ministry this way or that or do my thing well I'll just go somewhere else where I can do what I want to do and Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 2 when you give to the poor don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men truly I say to you they have their reward in full when you pray he says in verse 5 of Matthew 6 You are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. He says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as do the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Some will say, I want to do my ministry. And what's behind it motivationally is, I want people to see me doing my ministry. I want to be noticed in this fellowship for what I'm doing. And Paul would say, yeah, but Apollos planted and I watered. doesn't matter. God causes the growth. And the best place to be in any fellowship is behind the scenes. Because it's in the behind the scenes work that nobody sees, that that the Father sees you doing in secret, and the Lord says, and He will reward you for what you've done. Matthew 6.18, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Some people will say, I'm investing whatever I've got, however I can, whether or not I see the results or get the credit. And those people are going to be the ones who when we get to the kingdom, when we get to heaven, they're going to be the ones more highly honored. Because they're the ones who are quietly serving, just going about the Master's work. And that's where we're called. We can stack up shields of gold as trophies of war, or we can recognize what the Lord told Abraham all those many years ago. Genesis 15.1, I know I repeat this constantly, but he says, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. I'm your shield. I will protect you. I will also be your reward when it's all said and done. Amen. Verse 13 going on. So David made a name. I don't like this. The NASB adds, David made a name for himself. It doesn't say that in the original language. It just says, so David made a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He made a name. there, There was recognition that Israel, the kingdom, was growing, was expanding. Was it David's name that was known or was it Israel's name? I don't know, but the point is he wasn't about making a name for himself. He returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put, you could say he assaulted the Arameans. See, is why I said that before. He put garrisons in Edom, and all Edom he put garrisons, and in all, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. Now I want to point something out right here in verse 
13 and 14. Uh, to the south, David eats up the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He assaults the Arameans in the Valley of Salt. And some commentators believe the word Arameans in verse 13 is a scribal error. Because you read this, Arameans, there it is in verse 13, and then verse 14, it's Edomites. So which is it? Well, the Valley of Salt in Israel was to the south in the region of Edom, not to the north in the region of the Arameans. So we know that in the Valley of Salt, that battle was against the Edomites, that the Edomites were the ones he wiped out. And yet verse 13 says, Arameans, and i got to tell you, stuff like this, it, it kind of it makes me pause. When a commentator says, oh, that's a scribal error, it makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of there being scribal errors in the Bible. I like to be able to say, I stand on the word as inerrant, as the innate word of God. So rather than jump right on the bandwagon and say it's a scribal error, I have a humble but insignificant opinion that there's no error here at all. Now I can't explain why, I can't tell you why, other than I believe God's word to be authentic and accurate and true, word by word, verse by verse. So why does it say Arameans? Well, we'll see later on that the Arameans work as mercenaries and are hired by other kings to come and fight. Perhaps that's what was happening. Perhaps there were 22,000 Arameans or 18,000 Arameans fighting alongside the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And that's why the Bible mentions they were wiped out. And I believe we'll come to know the truth at the right time. But anyway, a slice that David is securing his borders all the way around, pounding the Philistines in the west, mowing down Moab in the east, zinging Zobah in the north, and finally eating up Edom in the south. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. The Lord helped David wherever he went. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Partial fulfillment. Partial fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He administered justice and righteousness for all his people. We're beginning to see this shadowy picture of the organization of the kingdom to come. But it's not the kingdom to come. Jeremiah, later on, will say in Jeremiah 23 verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Remember, we read that verse last week. And the other verse, the companion verse, we also read, Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Did you guys catch that last week? We were reading through, and I, I just read Jeremiah 23, and then we jumped to Jeremiah 33, and we were just, I was just reading it direct out of the Bible, and, and this is why as, as a pastor I should always really read carefully before I share it. I just knew Jeremiah 33 was part of the Davidic Covenant, so I just threw it in my notes, and I was reading it for the first time last week when suddenly I came across the word she, and it freaked me out. I think I covered it okay. Just kind of quickly went on because I had no idea why all of a sudden we're talking about she instead of he. What's going on here, Lord? Jeremiah 23 says this is his name by which he will be called. The Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah 33 says this is the name by which she will be called. What's going on here? Well, the he is Jesus. The she is Israel. The she are God's people. The she is Jerusalem. 
And what's absolutely awesome is that not only is the Lord called the Lord our righteousness, but His people are called the Lord is our righteousness. You see how great God is, how loving that He would share a name with us? In fact, when you're called a Christian today, you are sharing the name of Christ. There is no more wonderful thing that I can imagine being called in the world but little Christ. Not because I'm messianic in myself, but a little follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ. So when someone maligns you saying, oh, you're one of those Christians, you say, oh, say that again. (laughs) I like the sound of that. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness, by which she will be called the Lord is our righteousness. And that's wonderful. And the first person is Jesus Christ. In the second place, it's Israel. It's Jerusalem. Well, there are many comparisons and allusions to the coming kingdom. There you go. As we look at David's kingdom, and they're all very instructive to us. We'll see more as we go. Verse 16. Now, talking about the organization. As David is administering justice and righteousness for all the people, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Saraiah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, <laughs> was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. A little nepotism there for you. His sons worked in the... In the uh, in his kingdom, in his uh, palace there. But if you go back, it's interesting. I just want to point out verse 16 and 17. There are a couple of people whose names I think ought to be mentioned. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Saraiah was secretary. So these two guys, their whole, their whole purpose, their whole focus was keeping track of things. Writing things down as they happen. Jotting them down, journaling, and that's a great idea. Because you begin to see what, what God is doing. You begin to become aware of things that are happening. I shared earlier that the uh, newcomer's dessert was on Sunday. And I got to tell the story again of, of how the bridge started. And how the Lord called and, and how it came together. And 20 people in a living room. And then sitting in this barn when you know these two sides didn't exist. And we were all just kind of here. And there was hay bales and rats. <laughs> Even the rats were coming to worship. I mean, it was really a miracle. And, and I was sharing all this and how the Lord put it together. And, and to be honest, I've told the story so many times. Because every time we have a newcomer thing, I, I share how it gets going so people know what the background is. And understand that we are just an independent church. That we weren't planted by anybody. Just God said do it, so we did. And what's interesting about it is I get to telling the story and telling what happened. It's very factual to me. I walked through it. I lived it. And I watch people and they, and they react like, no way. Cool. You know, I mean, really? Really? You know, and, and they're amazed. And I'm going, yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, I was there. This is what happened. I'm just telling you what. I'm just relating the facts to you. And I begin to realize that Man, when we're going through the miraculous, a lot of times we don't even see it. Until we look back and say, wow, God was at work. Through all of that, I didn't think He was, but He was. There were some hard times when we first started out. There were some difficult days. 
But God was at work throughout, day by day by day. I, I've shared this before, I'll tell you tonight. There was, I told half this story on Sunday and didn't even finish the other half of it. So those who didn't hear the other half, you get to hear it right now. There was a Sunday, or uh, Wednesday night, when I was walking down here, and I was really discouraged, I was bummed out. It had been a hard week, there had been a lot of kind of naysaying about the bridge even being here. And, and so just walking down, I said, Lord, I, just, I could use some reaffirmation. Some confirmation that, that this is what you want us to do. Could, could you give me that? Just something tonight to say, Rick, this, you're doing the right thing. Hang in there, buddy. And I prayed for that. And I got down here and we got into worship and, and it was fun. And, and worship just changes everything for me. I think it does for all of us. And then got into the Word and I completely forgot about that prayer. I didn't even remember asking the Lord for anything. I was in such a good mood. I'm kind of bouncing out of here. And there was a couple who was here that night who didn't even go to the bridge. They just were visiting. And, and the woman came up and she goes, You know, I, this is kind of weird. I don't normally do this. In fact, I don't think I've ever done this. But I think God wants me to give you a verse. There's a verse that he put on my mind. He said, I need to give to you. And she goes, I'm not even charismatic. <laughs> and I'm still not thinking about that prayer. And, and she said, I said, well, what is it? She said, well, the Lord just wanted you to know that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And I just went, praise God. That's a miracle. And I look back now and I think about it. I still get chills when I tell that story. God has recorded some things. And as we see these guys recording what was going on as the kingdom was beginning to flourish and the borders were getting secure and, and David is being completely politically incorrect by American standards and doing great stuff for the Lord and God was with them, helping him wherever he went. It's a good thing. When you're in the middle of things, you often miss things. So recording things is a good idea. If you journal, if you don't, you know, it's not like you have to. But, but journaling is, is kind of a get-to in Christianity to track what God is doing. Anytime He does something, write it down and then you'll have it. And a lot of times it will be encouragement for you later. It reminds me of the old hymn, by the way. I grew up just singing hymns. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. I love to hear the story of Jesus, don't you? And I could hear it again and again and again. Christmas never gets old to me because the story is told again. Easter never gets old to me because the story is told again. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, as we keep seeing Jesus in the Scriptures, it never gets old to hear the story of Jesus. Again and again. This is why, by the way, I believe we have the Word recorded for us, written down, that we might study it and, and be in it and understand the Lord and, and hear about Jesus. That we might, two things, that we might remember what was done and be ready for what's to come. That's why we've got the Word. Can remember what was done and be ready for what's to come. Well, what was done? Grace. Grace is what was done. And what's to come? More grace. More grace is coming. And that, by the way, is what 2 Samuel chapter 9 is all about, as we saw on Sunday morning. It's all about grace. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, David was saying, Is there yet anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That word kindness we talked about Sunday is chesed in the Hebrew. Sometimes translated loving kindness, but it is the Hebrew word for grace. Grace. Kindness is too small a word. Loving kindness is bigger, but still, it starts to express what chesed means. 
It's, it's doing something for another person that is completely unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted. It's just the doer, the giver is doing it out of the goodness of their heart or doing it on account of someone else. And David in this chapter, we read the story, he shows kindness to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, because David loved Jonathan. Not because Mephibosheth earned it or did anything right, but David showed him grace because of his love for Jonathan. In the same way God shows us grace because of Jesus, on account of Jesus. We didn't earn it. Like Mephibosheth, we're crippled. Like Mephibosheth, we're asthmatic. We talked about his name. And what that name means, shameful breath, indicating that as a child he was named that probably because he had breathing trouble, probably because he was an asthmatic. And David shows this crippled asthmatic who was hiding out in a place called Lodabar, pastureless place, a barren land. This guy's a mess. And he's like so many of us. But David sins for Mephibosheth in this chapter, shows him loving kindness by restoring to him all of his grandfather's land. Everything that belonged to King Saul, David gives to Mephibosheth. He restores his land. He reserves Mephibosheth a place at his table, saying every night when dinner is served, Mephibosheth, you have a standing reservation. And the Bible tells us in verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and ate at the king's table regularly. Every night, that guy was there. And David adopted Mephibosheth as one of his own sons, which verse 11 tells us. It's an, it's an absolutely amazing story. And I shared also, Mephibosheth means shameful breath, or it also means to blow away shame, to dispel shame, which is what the Lord does graciously, gracefully in our lives. Romans 10, verse 11, the scripture says, Whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. And that's the story of grace. And if you weren't here Sunday and you want to hear that, you can check it out on the website. Verse 10, or chapter 10. Chapter 10. Moving right along, it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, became king in his place. So David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash. Does anyone remember Nahash? The Ammonite king, Nahash's name means serpent. We call him the serpent king of the Ammonites. And and he was doing some, some bad stuff against Israel. But apparently, while David was on the run from Saul, Nahash, enemy of Israel, showed him some, some kindness. You see, the surrounding nations liked the fact that there was division in Israel between David and Saul. And so they were trying to help out David, thinking they could undermine the kingdom of Saul and not realizing the true loyalty of David and and where his loyalty lied. But David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think David's honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has not David sent his servants to you in order to search the city to spy it out and overthrow it? Listen, sometimes... People are just being kind for the sake of being kind. David was just doing a nice thing here. There was nothing up his sleeve. He wasn't trying to spy out the land. He was, this is just purely an act of kindness. And it was probably sad after the death of his father Nahash. Let's send an envoy over there just to encourage and console and say, Hey, we're with you, bro. It was a move of kindness, and yet the people around... Hanun were all, oh no, it's got to be something else. There's no way that person could be being nice to me just because they're nice. It's not possible. 
there are a lot of cynics in the world out there, people who are bitter of soul, that immediately assume there's something sinister about an act of kindness. Boy, I hope that's never you. I hope it's never me. Someone's nice to me that I don't go, what do they want? Anyway, you know, my daughter comes in often and says, I love you, Daddy, and I know she wants something, but, but I'm expecting the love, you know? Bring it on. <laughs> of course, if you're not used to showing kindness, you're going to have trouble knowing kindness when it comes your way. Kindness is number five in the basket of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Galatians 5.22 tells us. And it's a great standard to live by. If you want to know kindness, you've got to show kindness. If you're not showing it, you're not going to know it when it comes along. And Hanun and the Ammonites, they don't know kindness when it, when it hits them in the face. Watch what they do. Verse 4. So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. So you got it right if you're trying to figure out what this is exactly saying. They got a half-beard buzz, and they got a full Monty pantsing. (laughs) So what happened? Cut them off right here, so they send them out, half a beard, and naked from the waist down. And these guys were absolutely humiliated. It was a humiliating thing to do. It was a stupid thing to do. Not to recognize just plain old kindness. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, it means they stunk. I can see David saying, those guys stink. They became odious to David. The sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans from Beth Rehob. And the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with a 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. So they realize David's ticked off. They're amassing armies so they can fight back here. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. While the Arameans of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the field. Now, when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear... He selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. And he said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall come help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong. Let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So, Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon, and he came to Jerusalem. This is great. What a perfect example. Remember that, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things were written so that we could learn from them, so that we could grow from them. In fact, he goes on to say, let him who thinks he, is, he stands take heed lest he fall. So we're told by Paul that the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the teachings, the prophets, all of it is to prepare us for today. So even in this little story of Joab and Abishai, his brother, fighting against the Ammonites and the Arameans, we see something for ourselves. Joab recognizes the enemy as God him surrounded. 
They're in the front. They're in the rear. So he gets back to back with his bro Abishai. I've got your back. You've got mine. You fight that way. I'll fight this way. If I'm in trouble, I'll call. You come help. If you're in trouble, you call. I'll come help. And it is a great strategy when the enemy has you surrounded to be back to back with a brother or a sister. Accountability. It's one of the best ways that we can deal with sin and temptation in our lives. If Satan can get me alone, if he can make me feel like I'm surrounded, there's a chance I might fall. He's got me. In Galatians 6.2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Which law? To love your neighbor as yourself. You'd want to protect yourself, right? So protect your neighbor. Be brothers and sisters in accountability with each other. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And then Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Which means you're not the only one feeling the way you're feeling. You're not the only one who's ever dealt with the temptation that you are dealing with. All temptation is common. There's nothing you've experienced or are experiencing that someone else, another brother, another sister in Christ, doesn't understand and isn't going through and struggling with as well. He says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. And that way of escape often is accountability. That's a good word. It's a word of protection. Don't stand like a lone island against Satan. You will fall. Don't think that in and of yourself you're strong enough to handle the temptations of life. You will fall. Get back to back with a brother or with a sister. And let me be very clear about this. Husbands, get back to back with your wives. Be accountability partners together. Wives, go to your husbands. Husbands don't need to be going to another woman. Wives don't need to be going to another man. That's a prescription for an affair. But accountability in a marriage, that is strong. If you're not married, man to man. Guys, you don't need to have a woman as an accountability partner because it's a prescription for emotional messiness. You're going to get into a sensation or a feeling for for a woman that shouldn't be there just because you're sharing emotion together. So guys, find another guy because another guy is going to much more likely be struggling with what you're struggling with than a woman would. Girls, ladies, find another woman and stand back to back together. Accountability is wisdom. We all need someone who's got our back. And so Joab and Abishai, they do that. And they defeat the Arameans and they defeat the men of Ammon. Well, it says then in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, when the Arameans saw they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had a dead sir sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, that is beyond the, the Euphrates, and they came to Hilam, and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. So now they're coming back again, which, by the way, Satan does. You drive them away. Yes, we have victory. Yes, we've won. And he regroups and comes right back at you. As we see in the temptations of Jesus, the Bible tells us that after tempting Jesus, Satan went away until a more opportune time. And so he will return again. The Aramaeans here, they gather up again. They get Hadadetsu. They get all the guys together. They're ready to fight. So verse 17, it was told David. And he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. Now, Joab fought before. David sent him. This time David is leading the fight himself. He's had it with these guys. Now watch this very closely. 
I said we'd answer a question at the beginning. We're going to answer it in just a second here. The Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel. And David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army. And he died there. And when all the kings, the servants of Hadadezer, saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. This may be a bit controversial, but I believe it's absolute truth. When did the enemies of Israel make peace with Israel? When Israel defeated them. In other words, Israel through strength wipes them out. Israel through strength and power defeats them and peace follows. Peace follows defeat. In all of history, there has never been a successful peace without a definite winner and a defeated loser in war. Monday evening, January 28, 2008 of this week, President Bush, during his annual State of the Union address, underlined his plan to affect his roadmap to peace by the end of 2008. If you don't know this by now, it calls for a new Palestinian state requiring Israel to give up Judea and Samaria, which is also called the West Bank. It proclaims East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine, which includes the old city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Mount of Olives, and Gethsemane. All would be the Palestinian capital. U.S. Lieutenant General William Frazier, um, the roadmap's implementation monitor, arrived this past Sunday in the region for an intensive round of meetings with both, both Israeli and Palestinian leaders in an attempt to push Israel further down the road toward this supposed peace. And I'm just telling you, you may disagree with me on that, and this and that, and that's fine, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. In fact, a quote from JerusalemPrayerTeam.org on Tuesday of this week said, This is a battle between lightness and darkness, between politics and prophecy. Our president, who is a Christian, who is a believer, who is a praying man, is playing politics in the face of of prophecy and let me tell you something prophecy always wins prophecy is not what we hope will happen prophecy is what has already happened from God's perspective and he's just letting us in on it he's just telling us what he's already seen not what he might be able to pull off but what is a done deal and so we can know from the scriptures that all the nations are going to be arrayed against Israel. All the nations of the world are going to come up against Israel. Zechariah tells us very plainly. And God will rescue them. And God will come down and fight himself. But as we learn from the peace affected by David, we need to understand peace follows surrender. And I know there are people who disagree with me on that. The whole Iraq war situation. People are saying we should never have gone in there. I have a different opinion. Peace follows surrender. Would there ever have been peace under a man like Saddam Hussein? No. And there's a mentality and there's an attitude and there's a, a, a sense of how things are done in the Middle East. And there are so many lies. I was just reading today 
out of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's book A Durable Peace and he made the comment that the big problem with trying to get peace in the Middle East is, is, is there's so much lies there's so much deceit how do you work that all out of there? He said, for a durable peace to happen in Israel and with the Palestinians, there must be truth. Without truth, you can't have peace. Peace follows surrender. Compromise, such as land for peace, which is the key component of the roadmap for peace, never works. Compromise never works. Look at history. Learn from history. Compromise does not work. It won't work in Israel. And by the way, it won't work in your life. I once heard it put this way, compromise is the language of the devil. I like that. It's it's actually very accurate. You can't make peace with the enemy. The enemy has got to go down to defeat in your life. There is only peace in surrender. Surrender. James 4.7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Oh, actually before that it says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The only way we're going to have peace in our lives is surrender. Complete and total surrender to the Lord. Lord, I'm defeated. Lord, I, I can't fight against you. I recognize finally that you have a power far beyond my pathetic little self. And I surrender. I surrender all. I, I give it up to you. You are Lord. I am not. And I exist to serve you. I surrender. David knew this. David was surrendered to the Lord. And he soundly defeated the enemy. The Lord knows this as well. And the Bible is clear on this game. Whatever you think about Israel, listen, God will prove this in the days to come. For you see, as chapter 10 begins, we see David offering chesed, grace. That's that word again in verse 2. I will show chesed to Hanun, the son of Nahash. The first time around, David says, I'm going to show grace. The second time around, David gives them a sound thrashing. And that reminds me of the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Because the first time he came in chesed, loving kindness. He came in grace. In gentleness, in the quiet of that Bethlehem night, he came as a baby born in a manger, as as a man growing up in this world. And he healed, and he loved, and he brought nothing but grace. He came to serve and to save. Next time he comes, it will not be quietly in a manger. Revelation 19.11 I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. What does a winepress do when you tread it? It produces red juice. Revelation 14 talks about this. The wine press is a picture of blood. And the Bible declares a very bloody day when Jesus sets foot on the earth again. And a wiping out and an absolute sound thrashing of the enemy going down to defeat. 
And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He will come the next time thrashing the enemy and the world will finally know peace. And for you and me, if you want to know peace in life now, it comes through surrender. Let's bow and pray. Stacy and Tom and Dan, you guys want to come back up? Lord Jesus, we invite your coming. And we invite it, Lord, because we are at a place now in our lives of surrender. But Father, even in that surrender, there, there's a there's a remnant of rebellion in us. And I pray it would be removed. And I pray, Lord, would you just forgive us of our sins and our selfishness when we turn our own way. Forgive us, Lord, when we, like Hanun, reject the offer of kindness. Do things stupidly in response instead of just praising you and thanking you. We surrender who we are to you. Lord, we surrender before Jesus now in this age of grace that we might stand with you in the ages to come. Lord Jesus, tonight, and even as we sing another song, I pray that you would capture our hearts completely. Drive out the enemy if he may hide there. As David once prayed, see if there is any wicked way in us and cleanse us, Father. That we might literally be of use in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.